chapter 2, and we want to finish this book up, and then, Lord willing, we'll uh, take up our study of the minor prophets in, uh, uh, next year. Uh, we've got Zechariah and uh, Malachi, I believe. Those are the two left, and uh, we'll uh, get to those. That would. In the meantime, we'll focus our thoughts on some aspects of Christmas and uh, the new year. So tonight we want to look at Haggai chapter 2 and verses 20 through 23, really, the last few verses here. Not a frown, but a crown. Uh, shortly before becoming a, a movie screen star, one young man was a circus performer. It was a job he was quite fortunate to have, considering his less than flawless audition. He was asked to perform on the high bar. And so he leaped on the bar and began his routine. And because he was nervous, his timing was off, and he spun over the bar and fell flat on his face some 10 feet below. He was humiliated, and he immediately leaped back on the bar, and as he spun around again at the same point, he flipped off again and smashed to the ground once more. His uh, outfit was completely torn. His hands and legs were cut and bleeding. He was extremely upset. And he got back up, and he leaped again onto the bar, but the third time was even worse when he fell back down to the, to the ground. The agent came over and picked him up and said, Young man, if you won't do that again, you've got the job. I think it was Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson once said, I would rather fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. You know, possibly one of the most humiliating things that happens to us in this life is to suffer failure. And the fact of the matter is that not one of us has a desire to fail. But we have a desire to succeed in everything that we begin to do. Whether it be in the realm of the physical or the material or the financial areas, every one of us, because of an innate desire, have a desire to be a great success. And yet, if this is true, then it ought to be especially true in regard to spiritual matters. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be a failure as a Christian. But I want to be the very best I can for, for God and to God. And as I consider this, the thing that amazes me is that there is not one of us that are deser deserving to be used of God. We're not deserve, we don't deserve to be used of God or by God or for God. And there's not one desirable thing within us that appeals to God. You think, well, yeah, but what about my good looks? Or what about my strength? Uh, or what about uh, my brain? Doesn't that count for anything, God? Think for, we think of uh, 
all the things that we do in this life and what we desire to do, we ought to be, have a desire to do right, to be what God wants us to be. But really, there's not one desirable thing within us that appeals to God to the point it would obligate him to take the broken fragments of our life, glue them back together, use them for his glory. Yes, while we do not deserve it, we ought to be delighted that God would deal with us in the way that he does. So as we come to this final message of the prophet Haggai, we're once again introduced to a man by the name of Zerubbabel. It's a good uh, name for some, some of you young people to consider in your family, when you raise your family. If you have a boy, call him Zerubbabel. I dare you. Well, that's kind of an interesting name. But as you remember, as we've examined this prophecy, there was a group of people who were without direction, without decision, without devotion, as it pertains to the house of God. For 16 years, they had completely neglected the work on the temple. And as a result, the people had become lethargic and and, uh, apathetic. And God had... had, uh, been long-suffering. And yet as we come to the final message here, we see the instrument that God is going to use to finish the work that had been assigned to these Jewish people. And it would seem as if the prophet seems to say to Zerubbabel, there's no need to frown. God gave him a crown. Now what's that all about? Well, we need to look at the last several verses here of our text and examine the man in discussion here. And you'll notice here as we look at Zerubbabel, first of all, he was a man specifically addressed. Look at verse 21. Let's go back to verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the fourth four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. It's interesting to note as you examine verse 20 and 21 that this message is directed and specifically addressed to one particular individual. That individual is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And as we consider him, we see here first he was called by the word of God. Again, it says there in verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. And then in verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. We're told the word of the Lord came unto Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel. Thus, again, here was a message specifically directed to a particular man. However, what made this message different from any other message was that it was not, did not originate with the man of God, but with God himself. You see, this is a word from God, given through the man of God. And God took something natural to perform the supernatural. God took the ordinary man to convey an extraordinary message. 
It was a divine call. It was a distinct call. It was a definite call. It was a call through a man to a man who was called by the word of God. And I submit unto you today, there must come a time and be a time when God must deliver a divine call to prepare us for service. Needless to say, in the days in which we live, there are many that have been called, but they've never been divinely or definitely called. The call may come from another source, but it never came from the source. And yet we are to be used of God, by God, and for God, then there must be a call to our hearts. I'm thankful for the call of God upon my own life. A call to a pastoral ministry. It took me a while to get going. I taught school for 16 years before becoming a pastor. But I came to that point where I knew that that's where God wanted me. And for 26 years now, I've been in the pastoral ministry. And as I've told you before, I tried to get out of it three times, but God would never let me do that. And so here we have a call to Zerubbabel. He welcomes the prophet into his court, and yet he finds that this is a message from someone even greater than Haggai. He was a man called by the word of God. Secondly, he was commissioned for the work of God. I want you to keep in mind here that this is a man who's the governor of Judah. He's the leader of these Jews. It is he who has at his disposal the reins of the entire nation. And yet now he's commissioned for a far greater work than that of governing, governing the, the nation. For God not only calls him by the word, but he commissions him to the work. You see, Zerubbabel was a man under whom the Jews were, finished, were to finish the building of God's house. God's house, the temple, had been destroyed. And it was to be rebuilt. It was to be rebuilt under his leadership. And his leadership would direct these people to finish what God had commissioned them to do. Now, while they had received their marching orders, Zerubbabel now receives his marching orders, and he's not only called by the word, but he's commissioned for the work. I think of a great 19th century preacher by the name of A.J. Gordon. Uh, I think of the time when he was walking through the world's fair back in the, uh, his day. He saw a man vigorously pumping water in the distance and as a result, the water was spewing all over the place, and he got closer, and he discovered that he thought what he thought was a man was really a wooden figure, and that it was an artesian well that was spewing forth under its own power. And he realized that the man was not pumping the water, but the water was pumping the man. And yet that's exactly the way it is to be in our lives. It is not to be us pumping the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit to be pumping us to do everything that God has demanded of us. I don't know about you, but the desire of my heart as a messenger of God is to be, is to be equipped with the Word of God, energized by the power of God, and enabled by the Spirit of God. I'm not so much interested in eloquence of man's words or wisdom 
but in the power and demonstration of the Spirit of God, even as Paul uh, tells us. And that will produce the results that we need. The thing that makes Zerubbabel so unique is that while he was a man of position, he was to become a man of purpose. He was a man called by the Word of God, and he was a man commissioned to the work of God. And as we examine his unique, this unique individual, we see he was a man specifically addressed. Secondly, we see a man sovereignly appointed. Look at verse 22. He says, And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the, the, uh, the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now, as we look at verse 22, there's a lot of prophetic truth contained here. Uh, you notice that the prophet uses the phrase repeatedly, I will. And this is alluding to a coming event. And so you notice, first of all, the dominion of God the dominion of God is magnified. <clears throat> Again, you look at the last part of verse 21. It says there, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And then we looked at verse 22, and he goes on to explain. He says, I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. I will destroy. I will overthrow, and so forth. The writer speaking here of the power, the authority, and the dominion of God that is to be magnified. Now, the events here are referred to are, are prophetic, future events. It could not have taken place in Haggai's day or during the reign of King Darius. In Haggai's day, there was no foreign enemy. So uh, 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 there was no foreign enemy uh, that was seriously challenging Persia. So, although Haggai's message was addressed to Zerubbabel, he now looks far beyond Zerubbabel to the time of the end. For example, the promise to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. That refers to the throne of the Antichrist. As you know, for a while his empire will be global. He'll be backed by ten kings of the revived Roman Empire. Eventually, the final overthrow of the Antichrist and all the millions massed against God will take place in the Valley of Megiddo. And at the unequivocal battle of, the, of Armageddon, it will be Christ himself who will turn back and overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. And his dominion will be magnified. Now, when I think of God's dominion, I'm reminded of an important date in English History. June 3rd, 1953. I was just two years old. June 3rd, 1953. This date marked the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. I don't know why I didn't get invited. But it's said that she was placed in the royal chair of King Henry. And as the entourage came before her, one would bow and then place in one hand a, a golden scepter, another bowed and placed in her hand a golden rod, and then a crown was placed on her head, and so on. And all shouted, including her husband, all hail the queen, all hail the queen. 
And yet when I read that, I thought, there's one who is far greater and far more important than the Queen of England. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, in God, in, in Him, is dominion. And it surmounts all other celebrities, supersedes all other royalties. His name outshines all other majesties. It outlives all other dignitaries. It is his dominion which causes the atheist to cringe, the infidel to cry, the skeptic to choke. And it is his dominion which one day will cause the knee of every king, every queen, every monarch, every dictator, every prime minister, every general, every president, every devil in hell to bow and acknowledge his sovereignty, his sufficiency, and his superiority. And I can't help but think of the song, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And so, whether it was in Haggai's day or our day or one day in the future, the dominion of God will be magnified. Notice, secondly, the decision by God that is identified. Verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord speaks through the prophet, he says, in that day, I'm going to take thee, my servant. Now the prophet speaks of dominion of God that's magnified, and he speaks here of the decision by God that's identified. And you see again, this is not only a prophetic message, but it's a personal message. The message is to Zerubbabel. And it's for Zerubbabel. And while God's dominion will be magnified... We're seeing here God's decision is identified. In fact, you'll notice the last part of 23, the Lord speaks and he says, For I have chosen thee. And it would seem as if God has made up his mind. He's made his decision to take and to use Zerubbabel. And again, you see, Zerubbabel was at this time a humble governor of Judah, seeking to lead the people in rebuilding the temple. But his position is now elevated to a new level, a divine level, for he is chosen, he's selected, he's it's been decided by God that he's going to use him for a divine purpose. And again, the prophet's message is prophetic in that it's looking at a coming event. It too could be said that Zerubbabel, we have been... Uh, as Zerubbabel, we have been chosen of God, by God, and for God. Uh, you see, in Christ, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, even before the foundation of the world. And therefore, while the dominion of God is magnified, the decision of God is identified, we can consider ourselves as well as Zerubbabel, as people who are sovereignly appointed. Here's a man specifically addressed. He's a sovereignly appointed. And thirdly, a man supremely adorned. Again here in verse 23. 
The finishing touches are put on this noble and humble king, and yet we truly consider, as we truly consider what is taking place here, we must observe, first of all, the historical significance of a past rebellion. Again, in verse 23, the man is referred to by saying, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil. Now, this is a common reference to this man throughout prophecy, and yet in it we see a historical significance of a past rebellion. Zerubbabel was a member of the tribe of Judah and the royal house of David. His father was Shealtiel, who was disgraced. He was disowned. Uh, he was a disowned son of a man by the name of Jacoyachin. I better get that one right because we're going to be preaching about that here in a week or so. But as you examine the various Old Testament references, you'll find the curse of God rested upon Jacoyachin and the grandfather of Zerubbabel. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of this curse. And as I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence, and I will give thee unto the hand of them that seek thy life, and unto the hand of them whose face thou fearest. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother will that bear thee into another country, where ye were not born, and, ye shall, but, and there ye shall die. Write ye this man childless. A man shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. It's Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 30. Now, Jehoiachin was not childless in that he had no sons, for he had seven or eight, but he was childless in the fact that none of his sat son sat on the throne. And that, because he dishonored God, he disgraced God, he disobeyed God, the curse of God rested upon him and his seed and his family. So there's some historical significance of that past rebellion. That's a sneak preview of Sunday morning, okay? Just to let you know that. You're privileged tonight to be have that sneak preview. By the way, I didn't say this, but I really appreciate each one of you being here tonight. Well, there was historical significance of the past rebellion, but there was secondly a spiritual significance of a present reward. Now, thank God, the past rebellion is not the end of the story. For while we see historical significance of that past rebellion, we do see a spiritual significance of a present reward. Again, notice in verse 23, the Lord through the prophet speaks and says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, saith the Lord, and make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. You notice again, God's going to make Zerubbabel a signet. What's that? Well, in those days, the signet was a ring that was precious to the eastern monarch. 
He would never part with it except to give it to someone who was temporarily entrusted with royal authority. But the signet ring was also used by kings to put their official signature on a document. In fact, the word signet is abbreviated form of the word signature. The signet served as a guarantee that the king would keep his promise and fulfill the terms of the covenant. Now remember that God had cursed the offspring of Jehoiachin. In fact, he had said that none of his sons would ever sit on the throne of Judah, and yet Zerubbabel was not a son, he was a grandson, and in him God was reversing the curse and renewing the covenant. Again, Zerubbabel was the tribe of Judah and of the royal house of David, and so God now reverses his curse and renews his covenant, and that Davidic line would not die out, but it would once again inhabit the throne. So God uses Zerubbabel as a signet, as a promise. He would keep his promise. Now, I'm not sure that Zerubbabel knew the spiritual significance of this reward, but we see this restored something that would bring the Savior into the world. Because as you know, as through the line of David, that the Savior was brought forth. And so it would be Christ who would be God's signet to the world that he had, and he would keep his covenant of salvation. And what is so amazing about this is that God used the offspring of a cursed line to renew, to reverse, and to restore his plan and his purpose and his progress, his program to redeem fallen man. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God made Zerubbabel a signet to being Christ, the signet, so that he might redeem us and make us an eternal signet ourselves and he had to keep his word. Yes, though there was a historical significance of the past rebellion, God in his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering gave the spiritual significance of a present reward. Truly in Zerubbabel and for our benefit, we see a man supremely adorned. Now, I would say in conclusion that it's just like God to take a destitute, degenerate, and depraved human and lift them out of the pit of shame and disgrace and redeem them and make something of their life. Not one of us could ever do for ourselves what Christ has done for us. And truly, he specializes in the business of taking a bunch of nobodies and making them somebody. And that was the case with Zerubbabel, a man specifically addressed, a man sovereignly appointed, a man supremely adorned. And while his background is not impressive, God had eternal plans for him, and he does for every one of us here tonight, if you'll let him. And he'll do things with your life that you cannot even imagine. And yet the key is not what God will do with you, but what will you do with God? Just ask Zerubbabel. He would testify today, if he was able to, of the grace of God. And he'd say, there's no need to frown. God gave a crown. Let's pray. Father in heaven...